Section two of Boy's Book of Famous Soldiers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephanie Lee. Boy's Book of Famous Soldiers by J. Walker McSpadden. Washington, Part two. The return journey was terrible. The horses had become so weak that they were useless except as light pack animals. The little party struggled along on foot. Washington with one companion went on ahead. It was the dead of winter, but when they reached the Ohio River, they found that instead of its being frozen solid as they had hoped, it was a turbulent mass of tossing cakes of ice. There was no way of getting over, writes Washington in his journal, but on a raft which we set about with but one poor hatchet and finished just after sunsetting. This was a whole day's work. We next got it launched, then went on board of it and set off. But before we were halfway over, we were jammed in the ice in such a manner that we expected every moment our raft to sink and ourselves to perish. I put out my setting pole to try to stop the raft, that the ice might pass by, when the rapidity of the stream threw it with so much violence against the pole that it jerked me out into ten feet of water, but I fortunately saved myself by catching hold of one of the raft logs. Notwithstanding all our efforts, we could not get to either shore, but were obliged, as we were near an island, to quit our raft and make to it. The cold was so extremely severe that Mr. Gist had all his fingers and some of his toes frozen, and the water was shut up so hard that we found no difficulty in getting off the island on the ice in the morning and went to Mr. Fraser's. Here they succeeded in procuring horses, and a few days more Major Washington handed in his report to the governor at Williamsburg. This report stirred the Virginia House of Burgesses to action. It showed that the whole western frontier was imperiled. One of Washington's recommendations, that a fort be built at the fork of the Ohio, was put into effect at once, and a Captain Trent was sent out with some woodsmen to begin its construction. But before the fort was completed, a force of French descended upon it and captured it. Near its site they themselves built a larger one, which they called Fort Duquesne, the site of the later city of Pittsburgh. This action on the part of the French was equivalent to a declaration of war. It was really the beginning of the Seven Years' War between England and France, for the control of America, a drama in which Washington was to have no little part. When news of the French move reached the governor, he sent Washington, with a rank of lieutenant-colonel and a small armed force against the invaders. The men were mostly half-trained militia whom Washington had been drilling for some such emergency. They were raw soldiers, but hardy fellows who thoroughly believed in their young commander. He himself, although but twenty-two, was a seasoned campaigner of the wilderness. Now he was essaying his first trial as a soldier. His men marched to a point about halfway to Fort Duquesne, blazing a road for other troops to follow, and constructing a fort to serve as a base of supplies. There he sent out scouts to reconnoiter. They reported an advancing party of French who were ready to attack any English whom they might encounter. Washington did not wait for them to attack he decided to attack first. Taking a force of about forty men, he made a night march in the pelting rain to surprise the enemy. It reminds us of his later famous exploit at Trenton. The path, he wrote, was hardly wide enough for one man. We often lost it and could not find it again for fifteen or twenty minutes, and we often tumbled over each other in the dark. However, at daybreak on this May day of 1754, they reached the camp of their Indian allies, who in turn took them with stealthy tread to the hollow where lay the French waiting to ambush the colonists. But it was their turn to be surprised, and they quickly sprang to their feet and grasped their weapons. Washington gave his men the order to fire. 
the first of many such orders that were to come in the stormy days of two successive wars and in a sense this was the opening gun a lively but brief skirmish followed the french lost their commander jumonville and nine others the english lost only one man killed and two or three wounded the remainder of the french twenty-two in number were taken prisoners the affair made a great stir and was the forerunner of extended hostilities washington foresaw the results immediately and set his men to constructing a fort which was called fort necessity he had won his first battle and it greatly inspired his troops writing afterwards to his brother lawrence he said i heard the bullets whistle and believe me there is something charming in the sound their fort however was well named for presently the french and indians marched down upon them nine hundred strong and as washington had all told but three hundred poorly equipped men they were compelled to surrender the terms of surrender were liberal enough permitting the english to return home with their light arms thus did washington's first campaign come to a somewhat inglorious close he tendered his resignation may have felt humiliated over his defeat although the house of burgesses passed a vote of thanks to him and his staff for their bravery and gallant defense of their country but later when governor dinwiddie requested him to head another regiment against fort duquesne washington politely declined he had not received sufficient support in the first venture to warrant another such attempt the next stage in the french and indian war and likewise in washington's military development was the arrival of general braddock with two regiments of seasoned troops from england braddock was an old campaigner of forty years experience who had long since learned all that was to be taught about the art of warfare he'd teach those french a lesson and as for the indians stuff and nonsense braddock's arrival made a great stir in the colonies it was the first sign of real help from the mother country the governors of four or five of the colonies met him at alexandria it was near mount vernon and the young retired officer watched the preparations with keenest interest he could not help contrasting this splendid equipment with the scanty packs which his own men had carried much to his delight he was invited by general braddock to join his staff as an aide-de-camp a post which washington joyfully accepted braddock had heard something of the virginia colonel even before leaving england it was not so much honoring this colonel officer as immeasurably strengthening his own good right arm if he had only had the discernment to know it as results showed braddock did not need his heavy cannon nearly so much as he needed an insight into wilderness ways just before braddock started west on his ill-fated expedition he conferred at fredericktown maryland with the postmaster-general of pennsylvania a strong practical man who was to obtain some greatly needed horses and wagons for his artillery and supplies this man a middle-aged and rather plain sort of fellow and the youthful virginia colonel whom he may have met then for the first time possibly attracted very little attention in the gaudy military array but american history could ill have spared either benjamin franklin or george washington we will not narrate again in detail here the oft-told story of braddock's defeat how he insisted on marching across the mountains and valleys of pennsylvania as though on parade with banners flying fifes shrilling and drums beating it was a brave display and such as the old general was accustomed to in europe it would undoubtedly put the french and their skulking allies to instant flight against such a method of warfare washington raised his voice of counsel but in vain the grizzled veteran brushed him aside washington was for rapid marching with scouting troops deployed on ahead but this prospect he writes was soon clouded and my hopes brought very low indeed when i found that instead of pushing on with vigor without regarding a little rough road they were halting to level every molehill and to wreck bridges over every brook 
by which means we were four days in getting twelve miles a few days before braddock reached the vicinity of fort duquesne washington had fallen sick of a fever and had barely recovered strength enough to rejoin the command but the slow progress to which he refers enabled him to do so before the attack though he was still far from well as he rode up to meet the general he could not help but admire the beauty of the scene the troops had crossed a ford on the monongahela about fifteen miles from the fort and now marched in close formation along its winding bank as though on dress parade but his admiration of the display only intensified his sense of danger the sixth sense of every woodsman he begged his general to scatter his forces somewhat or at least send scouts ahead but braddock rebuked him angrily for presuming to teach english regulars how to fight suddenly the sound of firing was heard at the front although no attacking party could be seen the soldiers had marched straight into an ambush as washington had feared with whoops and yells the indians commanded by a few french were firing from behind every rock and tree the regulars were thrown into confusion this type of warfare was new to them they did not know how to answer it the front ranks recoiled upon the others throwing all into wild turmoil washington at once threw himself into the fight counseling persuading commanding a company of virginians previously sneered at as raw militia spread themselves out as a protecting party of skirmishers the english officers also be it said displayed the utmost bravery in trying to rally their men the general as though to atone for his headstrong folly seemed everywhere at once he had two horses shot from under him before receiving wounds in his own body which were to prove mortal it was all over in a comparatively short time the troops which had so proudly marched with arms glittering in the sun were put to rout by an unseen foe that they were not almost annihilated was due to the presence of washington and the virginians they fought the enemy in kind and protected the fugitives until some sort of order could be restored washington it was who collected the troops and rescued the dying general he it was who led them back to meet the reinforcements under dunbar and he it was who laid the remains of braddock in the grave four days later and read the burial service above him again had the young soldier to taste the bitter dregs of defeat but it was salutary and a part of the iron discipline which was making him into the future leader that he had not lost any prestige by this experience but rather gained thereby is shown by the call that came urgently to him soon after to take command of all the forces of virginia he did not want the command but felt that after such a vote of confidence he could not decline it and so for three years more he struggled on a general without an army to protect the western frontier of virginia against invasion in april seventeen fifty seven he wrote i have been posted for more than twenty months past upon our cold and barren frontiers to perform i think i may say impossibilities that is to protect from the cruel incursions of a crafty savage enemy a line of inhabitants of more than three hundred and fifty miles in extent with a force inadequate to the task in the winter of seventeen fifty eight his health broke down completely and he feared that it was permanently impaired he resigned his commission and retired to mount vernon for a much-needed rest thus closes the first and formative period of washington's life the period with which the present brief sketch is chiefly concerned as we read of those years of adventure and hardship from an early age we realize that here was being hammered into shape upon the anvil of circumstance a very special weapon for some great need washington was not an accident he was a fine example of what special training can do for the boy who does his bit with all his might and because he was better fitted for the task than any other man in america we find him a few years later chosen to lead the colonist forces against mighty england a pen picture of him at the time 
from the diary of james thatcher a surgeon in the revolution deserves repeating the personal appearance of our commander-in-chief is that of a perfect gentleman and accomplished warrior he is remarkably tall full six feet erect and well proportioned the strength and proportion of his joints and muscles appear to be commensurate with the pre-eminent powers of his mind the serenity of his countenance and majestic gracefulness of his deportment impart a strong impression of that dignity and grandeur which are peculiar characteristics and no one can stand in his presence without feeling the ascendancy of his mind and associating with his countenance the idea of wisdom philanthropy magnanimity and patriotism there is a fine symmetry in the features of his face indicative of a benign and dignified spirit his nose is straight and his eyes inclined to blue he wears his hair in a becoming cue from his forehead it is turned back and powdered in a manner which adds to the military air of his appearance he displays a native gravity but devoid of all appearance of ostentation his uniform dress is a blue coat with two brilliant epaulets buff-colored underclothes and a three-cornered hat with a black cockade he is constantly equipped with an elegant small sword boots and spurs in readiness to mount his noble charger in this description somewhat fulsome in its praise we can read between the lines the confidence and affection which inspired his troops during all the trying days of the revolution washington has suffered much at the hands of his biographers they have overpraised him with the result that many readers of to-day have come to regard him as scarcely human a sort of demigod but one or two more recent biographers have had the courage and conviction to tear aside the mask and we can if we will see washington the man quick-tempered at times perhaps profane in the heat of battle fond of display and good living in his hours of ease but also a man to be trusted in every crisis cool courageous resourceful a strategist who made the ablest generals that england could send over against him suffer by comparison and when the great fight was won and the last of their proud generals cornwallis had crushingly yielded up his sword it is pleasant to think of washington writing about it to whom do you think a white-haired old man now ninety years of age who had given the young surveyor his first start in life lord fairfax was an old tory an unreconstructed english gentleman of the old school who drank the king's health religiously every day at dinner it must have been mixed feelings therefore that he heard of cornwallis's surrender but pride in his protege must have conquered we can imagine him as lifting his glass with trembling fingers to another toast here's to george washington and to that toast grateful america will ever respond important dates in washington's life seventeen thirty two february twenty second george washington born seventeen forty seven left school seventeen forty eight became a surveyor seventeen fifty three sent by governor dinwiddie on a mission to the french seventeen fifty four appointed lieutenant colonel and sent against the french and indians seventeen fifty five joined general braddock's staff with rank of colonel seventeen fifty seven resigned his army commission seventeen fifty nine married martha dandridge custis seventeen seventy five appointed commander-in-chief of american forces in revolution seventeen eighty one received surrender of cornwallis seventeen eighty eight became first president of the united states seventeen ninety seven ended second term as president seventeen ninety nine december fourteenth died at mount vernon end of washington part two